Good morning again. I will do the Bible reading uh, from Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's in the Church Bible at page 670, 671. So it's chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 18, and chapter 2, verses 17 through 26. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that uh, I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat and or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sin sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I've renamed this all the light we cannot see, is a novel set in wartime France. The leading character is blind, and her world has to be described through touch and sound. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes is going to help us enter realms we cannot see with ordinary physical eyes. We look at the way we look at the world the way an agnostic or a materialist might observe it. It's on their own turf. Let's set the stage. Enter our guide. He tells us, he's a teacher, wise man, huge intellect, but also doesn't stop there. He's a king, like Solomon, vast wealth. So, no question's going to be too tough to tackle, no experience 
beyond his reach. And what's the challenge? The quest to find the meaning of life, the secret of the good life. Verse 13 tells us the way he's going to set about it. Hard study, minutely observed, careful observation of human nature and experience. Life as it's really lived, anything you can see, experience, and measure under the sun in the visible universe. We can be sure our guide really has experienced life amongst the celebrities and down in the gutter too. And verse 14, he gives us a summary of his conclusions. Life is tough, and we can't make sense of it. If there is a God, he seems to have made life hard. But notice there are two postscripts here. The first is in verse 15. Wistful longing. Stuff seems tangled and twisted when it ought to be straight. Ah, but where does that inbuilt sense of straightness come from? Something seems to be missing. There's an indefinable gap, a yearning for something. But what? Can the crooked ever be straightened or the missing piece found? And then verse 18, there's a health warning. The more we study and travel and experience life, the more we shall meet with tragedy and sorrow. You want to find wisdom? You'll end up sadder. That's life as he has found it. And so we dive into chapter 2. Is this role play or is it real life? The teacher's lived experience or lives so closely observed that he's really got inside the skin of these characters. Verses 1 and 10. I'm referring to page 671 in the church Bible. Verses 1 and 10 open and close his CV. Many roles, many hats to wear. And first and last, he wanted to find enjoyment, to please himself. He's got to work for you, hasn't it? Have fun, be free. And so we enter four bands of experience. Verses 2 and 3. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is meaningless. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So what's he telling us? He's been an entertainer, a humorist, a joker. And that's okay for a party, but it's too shallow for life. He's been a drinker. That dulls the pain. But all too easily, 
that ends in alcohol-fueled escapades <laughs> that he'd rather forget. And so we move to the next phase, verses 4 to 6. This is the period of activity. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves, uh, to, to water groves of flourishing trees. Ah, the serious face. Full of activity. He's been a civil engineer. He wears his Solomon mantle, vast building schemes, gardening, farming, horticulture. I'm reminded of the Alhambra Palace with astonishing architecture, gardens, pools, fountains, and a harem too. He moves on to the third band of experience, verse 7. This is the time of achievement. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed gold and silver for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Achievement. He's been an employer. He's been a slave owner, a cattle breeder, a businessman, a rich tycoon, time in government, it seems, or a slice of diplomacy. And there's a hint of cultural refinement here. All those singers, choral music, taste, I suspect, for opera and ballet. Achievement. And then verse 10. Abandonment of restraint. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Sexual adventures here. Misspent past with, I think, a playboy lifestyle. And this is the self-indulgent King Solomon in his old age instead of the young ruler famed for his God-given insights. And now, verse 11. We have the teacher's verdict on it all. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless 
They're chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It all yields no lasting gain. Why is that? Well, he'll tell us shortly. But he does seem to wear another hat. Well, it's the old one, the philosopher, thinker, verses 12 to 14. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. So, is happiness to be found in being sad but wise? Or drowning out sorrow with reckless abandon? Live with depressing insights? Or frivolous self-indulgence? There's a hint of black humor in his reply, did you notice? Wisdom is better, because the wise see where they're going and can avoid the pitfalls. The fool is blind and in the dark, and there are ditches waiting for the unwary. Verse 16b. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And now crushingly inescapable logic kicks in here. Everyone is going to die. We're all doomed. No one can ensure their life's work will last permanently. Empires, civilizations rise and fall. Oh, and this entire universe is cooling down, did you know? It may be good for trillions of light years yet, but it can't last for eternity. That's why, logically, every dream of ultimate meaning collapses. Humanity's Titanic is holed below the waterline and it will sink to the bottom sooner or later. I don't suppose you can make it out, but that's the picture of the Titanic plan. It came up for auction last month, the plan that was used in the inquiry into the sinking of this great ship. She had 13 watertight compartments. She could float with four of those compartments flooded with seawater. The iceberg pushed in the plates in five compartments. And the water seeped in. She was doomed. She would sink. Couldn't be escaped. All those tons, thousands of tons of seawater would drag her down. And so with humanity. And once our observer gets hold of that. He moves into another phase, the depressive phase, verses 17 and 20. It's grim to read. So I hated life. All of it is meaningless. I hated all the things I toiled for. 
So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. He's come to hate this futile, meaningless life. It's a puff of smoke. It doesn't mean anything. And now bleak despair threatens to overwhelm. And just as we're wondering why on earth we're studying this book, we suddenly glimpse hope and light and joy. Surprised by joy is the title I'm giving to verses 24 to 26. The title of the autobiography of C.S. Lewis, brilliant Oxford academic and writer, agnostic, found his atheistic certainty was steadily eroded by the people he met and the things he found he had to think about until he tells us he had to give in and admit that God was God. He says he was the most reluctant convert in all England, but he soon became God's willing servant. Now, look at what our teacher is telling us. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now, this is something the teacher has observed. He has seen little pockets of contented satisfaction. A few who search for food and drink and work like everyone else. But here, life is taken as a gift at the hand of God. Life lived in the light of God. Everything a gift from him, the rough and the smooth. As God provides, verse 25, for human needs and enjoyment, human flourishing. These are people with the same burden as everyone else, but what a different outcome. Now, do you see the subtlety and the wonder of what's going on here? Just when our quest for meaning and fulfillment had led us to the brink of despair, God came to the rescue. He needs no argument to justify his existence. The Bible doesn't attempt to persuade us that he is real by any reasoning. It tells us that he is there that he is good, and that he cares for each one that he has made. We can't prove this, nor unbelievers the opposite. We can appreciate the weight of evidence. And when we assume the reality of God and accept every aspect of life as coming from him, then it all shifts into focus. Problems, trials, suffering remain. But God is there. 
to help, to strengthen, to see us through. And do you notice in verse 26, I love this bit, it's worth a whole sermon in its own right, God throws in special extra benefits. Do you see what they are? Wisdom, knowledge, happiness, just the very thing our teacher king had been hunting for. That makes the believer far richer than rival thinkers. Meaningless? But how might anyone get to know this God? Our teacher, I suggest, is hinting at this. If you assume a closed sky without the possibility of God, you won't find these joys. Life will always lack meaning and fulfillment. But if the heavens are open, if God shows himself, then life will radiate with blessings. Remember Jacob in flight from his circumstances, sleeping rough, and we read in Genesis 28, Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. When Jacob awoke, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And the Bible is constant in its teaching. Heaven is open. God is there, waiting to reveal himself make sense of life and death and what lies beyond. New Testament, Matthew 3, describing the baptism of the Lord Jesus. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And at his transfiguration again, heaven opened and a voice from the glory said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus is our wisdom and knowledge, our joy and salvation. In other words, the teacher's quest has a glorious ending, one we can each experience for ourselves if we will only allow God to speak to us. Now the teacher is not playing mind games with us. He's deadly serious in purpose. He wants us to find God for ourselves. Here in our passage and in much of this book, he sows seeds of doubt in the minds of people who think inquiry stops with what we can only see and measure. Really? He asks. 
meaningless. And those same seeds can bring hope to seekers. The rest of the Bible is about this quest, how God sent his own son on a rescue mission to repair the links that mankind had chosen to cut. God has never given up on us. Heaven is open. Jesus stands to welcome. Reminded of the account of Stephen's martyrdom in Act 7. Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And I think the teacher would say, and surely he woke again in the glorious presence of the God of whom Scripture speaks. May we each find this God for ourselves by his grace. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that this search is not meaningless. There is a God there who waits to receive, waits to welcome all who will come in the name of Jesus. Help us to be honest before you and teach us your truth for your glory's sake. Amen.